Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. I'm Rachel Casey and this is The Break, your sports snooker podcast. As always, we've expert analysis and exclusive content as we head to the business end of the Betfred World Snooker Championship. Also on this episode, eye lines, handbags and dance invitations. Slesser and Brown reflect on their first Crucible experiences. Is Trump playing well enough to break the Crucible curse? And we go down memory lane with a former world champion. That man is the 1986 champion, Joe Johnson, and he's here alongside someone who is yet to win a world title, a commentator, Philip Studd. But Philip, we we all know what Joe has achieved in the game. Oh, we do. He's constantly reminding us about it, isn't he? So, yeah, it's very difficult to forget. Lovely to have you with us. And Joe, welcome. Yeah, thank you for having me. Great tournament so far. We've just seen two second round matches finish. Neil Robertson beating Barry Hawkins. Let's get your reaction first, Phil, on that one. Yeah, I mean, I expected Robertson to come through. I think he's got something of a point to prove here at the World Championship because we know he's one of the modern greats of the game. He's a triple crown winner. He's won the biggest three tournaments the game can offer. But actually, since he won this 10 years ago, and it is hard to believe that's actually a decade ago that he was beating Graham Dot in the final. He's actually had a very modest record here. He's had a couple of first round exits. Uh, Rob Milkins has beaten him twice in the first round. Of course, he lost to Trump the year he was defending and trying to break the curse that I'm sure we'll refer to a little later on. Hopefully not too much. but uh... Hopefully not too much, because of course we know it doesn't exist, but that's another issue. Um, And he's only been to one semi-final since he won it. And for a player of his ability and for his achievements, that is a modest record since he won it. And I'm sure... That does play on his mind. It irks him. He wants to put it right. He wants to become a multiple world champion. And so he's got quite a lot to prove. And of course, he was up against someone who's got a great crucible pedigree in recent seasons. You know, he's been to the semifinals five of the last seven campaigns. So it was always going to be a tough match, but Robertson just ultimately had a bit too much for him, I think. And if you were looking at how the the match started with coffee all over trousers and spillage and all of that, Joe. It looked like maybe things might not be going for Neil Robertson. Well, that's right. But so many times people do something like that. I remember myself, I spilled a whole bottle of water on the floor one time that I was playing there. And I think, if I remember rightly, um, Terry Griffiths did the same thing. All kinds of things can happen when you're out there. Just little accidents that you're absolutely aware of. You you don't want to do it. I mean, my thoughts were don't fall down the stairs as I'm walking out, but I'm sure somebody will do it one day. 
And then we saw Hawkins sitting in the wrong chair. That had to be very quickly <laughs> disinfected as well. Yeah, I mean, this crucible theatre can just do funny things to people, can't it? I mean, obviously we don't have a, an audience this year and that is very disappointing. But my impression of everything I've seen this year is that there's no less tension. It means just as much. And there's something about playing at the World Championship in this most hallowed of venues, mm-hmm. you know, the pinnacle of the game, that makes players feel nerves that they don't feel anywhere else. And, and that's why they spill their coffee all over themselves. Silly that's things. why they sit in the wrong chair. Joe and... has mentioned about spilling the, the water mm. before. We were on tour somewhere and you ended up having a whole meal spilt on your trousers. Yes, somewhere. and I, I can't put that down to the pressure <laughs> of the occasion. It was just me getting old and, and losing control of my faculties. Um, but yes, I do remember that. And I remember being exceedingly cross about it. I remember my language being distinctly post-watershed after that happened. And I remember him cackling about it because he was sitting as, opposite still me at time. As, he, as he is now. Let's talk about Kyron Wilson and, and Martin Gould. Kyron Wilson coming through that. It was a brilliant start from him. Uh, and of course, it was a very late start from him as well. Yeah, I mean, I must admit, I, I wondered about how much of an advantage Martin Gould would have going into that match because, you know, he's really found his form in both qualifying and here at the Crucible. Fantastic win over Stephen Maguire, four centuries in the match, having come through qualifying, knocked out Graham Dot to get here. And clearly he was battle-hardened and was in the groove and feeling great about his game again after, you know, alluding to some mental health issues in the last couple of seasons where he's dropped down the rankings. So he was in a great place coming into that match and of course Kyron's form was an unknown quantity because he hadn't played since uh, the tournament back after lockdown the championship league which was the beginning of June but actually you would have thought it was the other way around because Wilson hit the ground running he scored very heavily throughout the match he had a bit of a wobble in the final session but there's always going to be that wobble the closer you get to the line Joe yeah well that's it you see I mean he needed three snookers um, Karen Wilson when he was playing him and it, it was at a time when he was making a comeback and I always say to Philip when we're commentating together, you know, the free ball's always on. So if you snooker, the first thing that you should be thinking about is don't leave a free ball. That's the first thing that you should think about. And and yet it still happens. Even now it still happens. We see it so many times. A free ball pops up and all of a sudden the guy can win with one snooker. So, yeah, it's crazy that it still happens, but it did do. And it cost Martin dearly, really, there, because it could have so easily... Because he won the first frame after the resumption, so it could so easily have been 11-10. Phil Yates, on the last episode, Joe, said that, you know, the, the crucible is 17 days, a marathon of the mind, but for Kyron Wilson, it'll be a nine-day sprint. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I suppose so. But, yeah, it, it's, the next match that he plays is going to be very, very entertaining. He's playing Judd Trump next and you know two great players and love uh, each other as well yeah I mean there has been a bit of spice in the past (laughs) hasn't there one or two comments exchanged I I think it's fair to say that they're not bosom pals you know we're not talking about some bitter rivalry here but it is a rivalry because actually their head-to-head is very close if you include the shorter frame matches in the championship league I think Trump leads eight wins to seven 
So, you know, there's plenty of mutual respect about the threat the other player carries, and it could be an absolute cracker. Cannot wait for that. Congratulations to Neil Robertson. Commiserations, Barry Hawkins, and of course, Martin Gould. And well done to uh, Kyron Wilson, the latest uh, player to uh, book his place in the quarterfinals. Check out eurosport.co.uk for details on Ronnie O'Sullivan and Ding Jean-Wee. And Anthony McGill and Jamie Clark. quarterfinals uh, will finish tonight. But, fellas, we must talk about... Anthony McGill and Jamie Clark, handbags. Yeah, no, they're two beef. good players, aren't they? <laughs> <laughs> what do you think, Joe? Obviously, <laughs> let's just explain uh, to to our listeners that the beef developed after McGill became unhappy uh, where Clark was standing during his shots, and Jan Verhaas, who is he's, he's quite an intimidating character, isn't he? How tall he is, and obviously an, an experienced referee. He did step in to calm the tensions, Joe. Yeah, and, and there can be lots of tensions, can't there? I mean, there's a lot at stake here. Uh, but I don't think, personally, I don't think it was intentional what Jamie did. He was wiping his cue, wiping his forehead with a big white towel, and it, it was kind of out of the, 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 the line of shot that McGill was playing, although he could probably see him in his peripheral vision and he could see this towel moving about and what have you. But I don't think it was on... I promise you, I don't think it was on purpose. Have you ever had a, a situation in your career when you kind of look behind and you think, oh, I wish he'd just sit down, get out of my way? And... Well, uh, anybody that's played Alex Higgins will know that. He stood <laughs> up and sat down every shot you played. And every time he stood up when you were taking your shot, you, you thought to yourself, does he expect me to miss this? You know, is he expecting to, me to... Uh, miss this and he's going to get back to the table sit down please but you didn't say that to Alex no I promise you but no I, I expect that you wouldn't be that brave Joe <laughs> Clark tweeted during the interval Phil you want to dance let's dance I like you. I mean he, he actually was 8-2 down at the time and then McGill went on to win the next five frames but he was you know, still having a little bit on social media well that's the irony isn't it that ultimately it's worked in McGill's favour because presumably he's got fired up you know at a perceived injustice and he was in all kinds of trouble at 8-2 down. Now he's right back in the match. I mean, the comment I would make about this is we talk ad nauseum about sportsmen and women being in the zone when they're playing well. And when you're in the zone, you are impervious to any extraneous distractions, whether it be a mobile phone or someone coughing or someone moving in your peripheral vision. You know, that, that just doesn't apply because all you're focused on is what you're doing. You're feeling confident, you're potting balls. When you're struggling with your game, then suddenly those distractions become magnified and you're almost looking for something to upset you because you're feeling unconfident about the situation. You're not playing well. Uh, the reality of the situation is that, you know, McGill is now right back in the match, having seemingly been out of it. And only Jamie Clark could tell you whether it really affected him, that, that little contretemps. But you know, he lost five straight frames. So you've got to think maybe it did. And McGill's right back in it. It just makes for a great final session, doesn't it? Yeah, it's almost like uh, ding dong, bring, bring out the fighters. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, from my own point of view, things happen in, in, in matches. It could be somebody in the crowd. But if you're really in the zone, like Philip's talking about, you can get rid of it. But 8-2 down, you know, something had to happen. And um, 
if he is seeing somebody moving in his peripheral vision, he has to say something. He's entitled to, really. Absolutely. But equally, if he'd been eight two up, would he have mentioned it? Probably not. Well, that's a good point. You know, would he have mentioned it eight two up? Would he have seen it? Would he, should he, could he? (laughs) Will it happen again? We're going to park it there for now and it'll be quite interesting to see, of course, what uh, will unravel this evening. Now, delighted to have Joe Johnson on our our podcast, of course, with uh, Philip Studd for this episode, April 1986, Joe you arrived to the crucible, not a not a prayer, not a hope in hell. Yeah, I mean, it was my uh, dream, and it's every player's dream to win the World Championship, and I'd never won a match there. So I didn't hold up much hope of doing well that year, although, to be fair, i just got in the top 16 that year, so I was waiting for a qualifier rather than a qualifier myself playing one of the seeds, which was is always difficult. Uh, a lot more difficult. So I was waiting for a qualifier, and fortunately I played a, a guy who was a good player, but I'd always beaten him, and that set me forward. And funnily enough, Mike Hallett was playing the world champion, Dennis Taylor. And when Mike Hallett rocked up instead of Dennis Taylor, did you think, that, well, the, this, this is could it. be my year? Well, this is it, you see, because it, this is how fate it takes over things sometimes. I'd never beaten Dennis Taylor. In fact, he, he walloped me 10-1 either the year before or a couple of years previously, at the Crucible. So when I was going back home after beating Dave Martin in the first round, I thought to myself, well, Dennis Taylor, well, at least I've got through to the second round, you know. And then when Mike beat him, I thought, oh, my Christmases have come at once because (laughs) I'd had great results against Mike Allard, but nothing against Dennis Taylor. So, yeah, it was great for me. It was wonderful. Can you remember much about uh, Joe Johnson, you know, biggest shock for, for, for many years? People still talk about it. I think the thing I remember most is the contrast of emotions and reaction in Steve Davis, because, of course, the year before he'd coughed up a 9-1 lead over the aforementioned Dennis Taylor to lose eighteen seventeen, And he will be the first to admit, Steve, that he was desolate afterwards. I mean, it took him months to get over that because he saw it as abject failure to have conceded a lead of that size against the player that he perceived was inferior to him he just could not shake the disappointment for a very long time the following year when he played Joe his emotions were completely different because he knew he'd been outplayed I mean Joe didn't just beat him he beat him handsomely he won 18-12 and he has said actually since you know he thought good on you you've yeah just, you've yeah. really deserved yeah, what a it. Gentleman. And, and there was you know no question in Steve's mind that he'd been beaten fair and square and the better player won over the two days whereas against Taylor he felt as though he'd blown it you know and it should never have gone to that final frame and that final black so that's the thing that I remember most about that time and you beat Mike Hallett then Terry Griffiths the, well, the great Terry yeah, Griffiths yeah I mean and you can say that properly because he was the great Terry Griffiths and I'd never beaten him mm-hmm. he'd walloped me every time we played you know I didn't fancy my chances but I mentally said to myself right if he's going to beat me this time it's going to be because I'm attacking him and I really attacked him and, and really went at him as, as as hard as I could broke the balls open as as soon as I possibly could and I think I took a 4-0 lead I was 5-3 uh, first session 9-7 going into the final session oh feeling pretty good and then from somewhere he's won 5 on the trot and I thought Uh-oh. here we go again yeah Griffiths beats me again but but then a Mr Green I'll never forget it a Mr Green to beat me 13-9 well, it didn't just need the green, but it was an easy green. It was amongst the reds and what have you. And he missed that green, and I thought to myself, wow, 
is feeling the pressure. Mm-hmm. And I thought to myself, right, I'm not going to miss from here. And I didn't. <laughs> I couldn't believe it. I didn't miss from there. It you was got a, a standing ovation, by the way, at the end of that session. <laughs> I mean, there aren't many standing ovations at the Crucible, perhaps until the final and, and the trophy's been won and the trophy's been lifted above the, the winner's head. But... Joe actually got a standing ovation when he completed that win. He gets one uh, all the time when he comes in, in into work. <laughs> he does now, but he demands it now. Back then, no one knew who he was. It was quite easy, I think, the logistics as well, because it was down the road. You know, you said, yeah. it's great to go home to my own house and you're to your own wife, which yeah. uh, people p- picked up like, goodness, I can't believe he said that. But of course, yeah. he didn't mean it, Joe. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I didn't. I didn't know what I was saying half the time anyway. But, yeah, it was it was great to go home and, you know, sleep in my own bed and, you know, relax and, you know, go to the park or something like that, get out of the way of Sheffield because it's it's mayhem. You know, when, when, when you're in Sheffield and you get absorbed with everything that's going on, you're watching matches here and there, you, you're hearing everybody saying, come on, Joe, you know. Hey, I, I just wanted to get out of that environment, and and I did. I, I managed to get home, and me and my wife went for walks in the park and things, and I didn't practice from the moment I played on the snoo- on the match table, on, on, on the... Um, I didn't practice on any of the side tables, didn't practice at home. And Steve Davis said to me afterwards, he said, you, you, you didn't practice? I said, no, no, I was getting enough practice on the, on the main match You're table. You playing enough. And of course, then the semi-final at Tony Knowles, you were in a kind of a tricky situation. You actually almost withdrew from that match. I did, yeah. How did you know that? You must have done your own work there, Rachel. <laughs> oh, I was really surprised. A yeah. back cyst. Yeah, I, I had a, a, an, um, an abscess on my back and it, I was in so much pain that after the first session I said to the tournament ref, referee, um, I just can't do it. I can't, I can't manage the second half. And then a doctor was brought and they, they got rid of it for me. And um, The I first managed... operation at the Crucible. <laughs> yeah, and, and uh, I managed to play the second half without pain and it felt great. And I'd always played well with Tony Knowles. He'd beaten me in the professional players tournament. Um, I was 8-1 down with that and we levelled it at 8 each. So we'd always had good hard matches together and it was fun playing Tony because he played the same way as me he used to attack the frame attack the game and when when I was playing Tony I thought well it could have been a lot worse I could have played Kirk Stevens who I'd never beaten Though so, it seems like there were a lot of players that, that you'd never beaten in yeah, this yeah, that's story. right yeah you know I mean the, and fate played a great hand you know like you know giving me the, the draw that I needed the other thing, actually, to say about Steve Davis is, which most people watching that 86 final and making Davis the red-hot favourite at the outset, in fact, I think they were even offering odds on Joe being whitewashed 18-0, OK? So that, that's how much of a, an underdog he was. But what most people wouldn't have known is that Steve played Joe a lot as an amateur and Joe beat him and beat him handsomely. So back in those days when Davis was in his pomp, most players were intimidated by him because he was so good. And, you know, that was probably worth a two or three frame start in every match Davis played. But Joe didn't have that intimidation factor because he knew he could beat him. He had beaten him as an amateur. And I think that made a, probably a big difference. Joe, yeah, it? yeah, it probably did because we'd never played as professionals together. 
which was fortunate for me because the last time I played him, you know, I did beat him quite handsomely at the Northern Snooker Centre. And um, he, he may have had that in his mind, but I certainly had it in my mind that I've nothing to fear here. He's not Terry Griffiths. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And listen, it was a, an amazing achievement and, and life changes, you know, yeah, when you absolutely. become world champion. Have you ever heard of a band called Made in Japan? Yes. Any good? <laughs> I don't, I'm not familiar with their work sufficiently to be able to uh, answer that question. Well, I'll tell you, Made in Japan were really good until they got hold of a lead singer oh, yeah, called, no, that's, called Joe. That's right, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, available in all bad record stores, I suspect. <laughs> yeah. Well, hey, listen, we, we made a record and it got to number eight. In our house. Yeah, well, so did Snooker Loopy, so I wouldn't shout too loudly about that. <laughs> Talk about your house. Obviously, your, your family, your wife, uh, hugely proud of you being world champion. Uh, uh, Philip, I'm sure you've heard this story about um, what happened to that uh, videotape of Joe's amazing moment. I've got a nasty feeling that his children, bless their little cotton socks, might have um, wiped over it with Thomas the Tank Engine or something yeah, like that. It was He-Man. Oh, even worse. <laughs> Master of the universe. <laughs> How did you feel? Well, the thing is that we never we never watched it. You know, we had it on tape, uh, never watched it, and it didn't get rerun. And then years later, and I mean years later, probably ten, maybe twelve years later, you know, somebody came round and they said, "Oh, come on, let's put the tape on, see see the winning moments." Let's all you. gather round yeah, and yeah. have a lovely evening. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Fortunately for the, my sons, they weren't there that night. Because when I did put the tape on, you know, and I, and I saw E-Man of the Universe, I thought, I'll kill him. The little, the little so-and-so's, I'll kill him. I mean, he was good, but he wasn't a He-Man, was he? <laughs> the He-Man in pink shoes. Where are those shoes? Yeah, I've still got them. Yeah, I've still got the pink shoes. Um, I think I, I gave the originals to Terry Wogan for um, Children in Need. But I've still got the pink shoes because I used to get sent shoes from the particular shop every month or something like that. It was great. And really nice shoes as well. Pink, red and white they were. Very flashy. You met Princess Diana? Yeah, yeah. I don't really want to say too much about it. But, uh, yeah, the thing is that I, I was in a long line of people being introduced to her. And um, when it came round to my, my... I shook her hand thinking I'm going to go on, you know, just move on, move on one, move on one. But she didn't. She stayed and talked to me and she mentioned the shoes mm -hmm. and um, she said was, was I interested in tennis and I said well I've never been to a tennis match but I've watched a few things on television you know John McEnroe and all, all that and she said would you like to go and I said yeah I'd love to so she said well I invite you and your wife to go so she did and she said oh would you like to go with us and I said I'd like to meet Cliff Richards so you might think he might give you a bit of hand with Made in Japan. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, something like that. Well, yeah, he, he was my idol kind of thing, Cliff, at that time. And uh, Cliff, Cliff came with Princess Diana. And my wife wanted to sit next to Princess Diana. And she was sat next to Cliff Richards. And then it was me and Princess Diana. And she kept saying to me, can you swap? Can you swap places? And I said, well, yeah, well, I'd like to. But what do I say? And she says, well, you could say that he sat on my skirt and it's a brand, it's a brand new dress and he sat on it. Just, just say something like that. I said, I'm not saying that. Quite a crafty thing to kind of concoct yeah. an excuse like that, Phil. Absolutely. But uh, 
doesn't remotely surprise me, to be yeah. honest, no. Well, you've met Terry and, you know, she, she's told you the story, hasn't she? So she bought a brand new dress and Cliff sat on her dress all night. Was she cool with all the, the attention that you got and were you she, cool, cool she, with no, it all? I wasn't, but she was, yeah. She was really cool. You know, I couldn't believe that, you know, people that I really admired and, you know, had, had followed for a long time coming up and asking me for my autograph and I wanted to ask them for theirs. You know, it was it was a weird, a weird situation, Rachel. I would imagine a weird situation. What was the overriding feeling when you actually did win? Uh, well, it was something that I'd always dreamed of, obviously. And I'd beaten all the players except for Griffiths, had beaten all the players that were was in the championship at one time or another. I mean, I, I was late in turning pro. I think it was about 28, 29, something like that. So I was at the end of my career when I, when I turned pro, and I won it four or five years later, and it... It, it felt a natural feeling to win it because I'd beaten all these players before. You felt like you belonged at that yeah, stage. Yeah, absolutely. Probably. I think that's the word I was looking for, you know, that, that I belonged there. I, I didn't think, well, you know, I shouldn't have won this. I'm not good enough because I, I certainly thought I was good enough. Mm-hmm. And you definitely belong on the Eurosport commentary team, that's for sure. You're in great shape. I know you guys love to get out in the evening, have your, your curry, a, a glass of... He does. A glass, a glass of wine. I just want to say, like, because, you know, even if you... If you you look up Joe Johnson, obviously the biggest surprise being world champion. But also if you look kind of maybe from a personal point of view, you've had a lot of struggles health wise as well. Yeah, I have. Yeah. But, um, you know, since I've met Philip now, you know, we, he, he treats me. Uh, I put him on the straight and narrow. Don't yeah, I? absolutely. Did you, I've, I've read that he has three heart attacks in a match. He's one of life's greatest survivors, if that's the case. <laughs> He's got uh, resilience in spades, doesn't he? I mean, yeah. you know, forget about Davis and Hendry and the rest of them. This guy is, uh, he just doesn't know when he's beaten. Well, I try and look after myself. I stopped smoke. I did smoke and I stopped smoking about 14, 15 years ago. And that certainly helped me without a shadow of a doubt. But you're both in great shape. You both enjoy being commentators, what is the best part of it for you, Phil, the, the World Championship? How do you kind of keep on the straight and narrow, I guess? Well, I mean, I can remember, you know, the, the match that made me fall in love with snooker, I was, I was still relatively young. It was when Jimmy White played Alex Higgins in the semi-finals back in 1982. So I would have been still 11 then, believe it or not. Um, and I just was transfixed by it. It was like two players just absolutely going at it, hammer and tongs. You know, they were great friends off the table, but obviously fierce rivals on it, playing at breakneck speed. It was a kind of brand of snooker that hadn't been seen before, really. And it was a match that changed snooker history because Higgins made the famous 69 break when he was on the cusp of defeat. And had he missed any of those amazing balls that he potted, White would have been in the final. And who knows, he might have become champion. He might well have beaten Reardon in that final. Reardon perhaps wasn't quite the force he had been. And so that match changed the course of snooker history, and I fell in love with it. And when I finally went to the Crucible for the first time to work there, I was like a kid in a sweet shop. I mean, the first piece not, uh, person I actually interviewed was Jimmy White. And seriously, I was holding my <laughs> microphone as I am now, but it was like this. I couldn't keep still. Wobbling all over the place. And he was trying to follow me while I was asking him the questions. You know, and he was in hysterics because he could see I was a right mess because Jimmy had been, you know, very much the player that I'd followed and shed many a tear over because I of think his we're all we're all still shedding tears the over Jimmy. so yeah to actually get there and then when I finally commentated there in the commentary box looking down on that table and that iconic theater and packed to the rafters as it of course was 
when I first went, uh, it was just such a thrill. I couldn't believe it. You know, it was one of those sort of dream come true moments. I played Jimmy in the World Seniors. The draws just come out. Oh, wow. Yeah, okay. So, yeah. And I, well, you haven't been practicing. How are you going to cope with playing Jimmy? Well, yeah, playing Jimmy, it's just a pleasure every time you play him because um, he's such a great sportsman as well. You know, taps the table every time you make a, a good shot. I can't remember him tapping the table for me, though. Did you win the seniors? Two, <laughs> did you win the seniors two years ago? Then I, I won the uh, sit masters seniors. Okay, okay. and it, that was last year. So you, st- uh, you, j- you still Jimmy, got a bit about you then? Well, yeah. I mean, I, I, I try and keep my hand in all the time, Rachel. Course, you know, of keep, course. But as you say, I'm not going to be able to play. No, uh, but I can't much. imagine he's doing too much practice up there no. either on his 17-day Eurosport stint. From a veteran of the snooker scene to a couple of crucible newbies, I've been catching up with Jordan Brown, who went out to Mark Selby in the first round. And first up, Elliot Slesser, who was defeated by Yambing Tao at the same stage. He's quickly moved on from that. And he was out and about enjoying the sunshine when I spoke to him earlier. Where are you? I can hear ducks. Yeah, I'm just out in the park with my little girl. <laughs> Looking back on the crucible, it was a bit of a, a roller coaster ride for yourself. Did you enjoy it at all? To be honest, not not really. I didn't like the fact that there was no crowd there. I felt like I struggled that there was no crowd. And no, if I'm being deadly honest, I didn't really enjoy it. I obviously loved playing at the crucible, but hated how it wasn't how I always pitched that it would be. Like the dream of what I've dreamt for a long, long time. And what about your granddad? He's played such a huge role in your career. I'm sure he was very proud. What did he make of it all? He was gutted as well. Obviously, he couldn't come and sit in the main arena and be close to when I was playing. He obviously had to sit on on the balcony as the guest. And he was obviously telling us to just try and stay as positive as I could be. But as I say, I I think it ruined it for him a little bit as well. I felt heartily sorry for him, to be honest, because obviously he'd had the same dream as me and always pictured would have it a certain way, but obviously with a pandemic, it wasn't possible. Who do you think, Elliot, will lift the trophy? Um, it's hard to say because obviously there's, there's so many world-class players and they're all capable of beating each other. But if I was going to have to put money on it, I, I think the winner between Selby and Robertson, I just think Selby's obviously due to win a big comp again. And I think it's been too long since Neil won another one. Like I think Neil, I would say himself, he should definitely have more worlds. And I think most people know he should definitely have more worlds. But obviously Selby over the distance is his top draw as well. And he obviously hasn't been performing in the, in the big events for a little bit of time. So either of them, I think the winner comes from that match. Elliot, I saw you row in like so many players on Twitter about the tiff between Anthony and Jamie yesterday. I get the feeling you think maybe that Anthony McGill is being unfairly criticised by some. Definitely, yeah, because I, I, I know them both. They're both nice lads, do you know what I mean? I've kind of grew up with them. Anthony was a little bit older than me. I still play junior comps with him and Jamie the same. Obviously, tensions are running high. It's a big tournament. There's a lot of money on the line. If Anthony's got a feeling that something was wrong, why why shouldn't he be able to say what he wants? Like He's well within his rights to say, I think there's a problem here. We need to sort it. But obviously, it just got a bit more heated than I would have expected it to because they're both quite relaxed lads as well. They're away from the table, so... As I say, I think it's just been blew up proportion by everybody. They've had a little bit of a disagreement. They'll probably play it again. Just, I would assume, just try and forget all about it. Finally, Elliot, has that venue been booked or chosen for the the big wedding bash? Um, she's already started looking at venues. We went and viewed a, a venue yesterday. 
she's got more venues for us to go to and she's sorting all the lists and stuff out because that's her part of the deal she can sort all that out I'll just go to the venue and basically nod when she says oh this is the right place That was Elliot Slesser who I caught up with earlier on Zoom I also spoke to Jordan Brown who went out to Mark Selby in round one a player that despite everything enjoyed the experience of his debut the first time the Crystal, it was a lifelong dream and I'd certainly enjoyed every minute of it. The playing that iconic venue was, yeah, it was just a dream come true. You know, I can always say that I've played in the most famous venue of all and now that I've got a taste of it, you know, I'll hope, hopefully um, that'll stand me in good stead for the future and, um, you know, that's what I want to get back there because hopefully all, all this COVID stuff will over and we'll be like crowds back in you know that's we really want to be playing with an atmosphere you know it's not really much fun you know playing behind closed doors but unfortunately it's just the way it is at the minute and uh just uh well hopefully the next time we get back there they'll be they'll be back to normal just wondering have you been managing to to watch the snooker at all wondering whether you know you might be back there sometime soon yeah, I've been following it a wee bit. I've been um, following um, a good friend, Jamie Clark. He's playing at the minute. He's doing really, really well. We spend a lot of time with each other during qualifying. Uh, we've been having breakfast and having a wee drink here and there. So, yeah, I've been watching him bits and pieces. I've been following a wee bit of Ronnie, obviously, because he's, he's the man to watch. And I think he is the man to beat this year, as, as well as Judd. But, um, yeah, it's going to be interesting to see how it all pans out. Do you think that Judd is playing well enough? To win again? Yeah, I think I think um, he struggled a wee bit. Uh, obviously, Tom was a very tough first round match for him. But I think um, as the tournament progresses, I think he's only going to get stronger. He's still obviously the man to beat. But um, I think Ronnie's just showing signs that you know he's ready for another world title. And I think obviously with no crowd, I think it really suits him because um, you know he, he could just play under any sort of environment. You know, he's just that good and. Uh, I think um, this is Ronnie's title for the second. Okay, and you did mention your pal Jamie Clark there. We saw the little bit of uh, problems between himself and, and Anthony. How did you see that? Um, I was very surprised because I, uh, I've i known Anthony for a lot of years and uh, he's like a gentleman, you know, the way he conducts himself. I was just very surprised that he had a problem with Jamie, you know, being in his anything, but... From what I can see, I don't think Jamie done anything wrong. I just think it was just heat of the moment, and obviously Jamie was playing really, really well, and he was he was heavily beating them at that stage. I think it was seven two. So I think just Anthony just maybe got a wee bit frustrated and just took it out in Jamie, which I don't think is fair. But you know, everybody's entitled to opinion. Very interesting listening to the guys. Jordan Brown, he loved absolutely everything about his uh, Crucible debut. Elliot Slesser, in complete contrast, he was disappointed, you know, that his 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 granddad could really look on from afar and that, you know, the crowd weren't there and he just didn't really uh, get the, the buzz of that. And it was disappointing, I guess, for all uh, debutants uh, this year that they didn't have that experience. Joe, I'll, I'll ask you, can you remember your first time playing there? Fred, not Rachel. <laughs> it's that long ago. I can't. I can't remember who I played, but I, can, I do remember being frightened to get to death the first time that I played there. And I, I don't know who it was. It could have been Bill Werbenick. Um I, I remember playing Bill Werbenick there, and I thought to myself, "What a draw this is! He hasn't won a match all season, and he hadn't. He'd never won a match all season. I'd played him in a few exhibition matches before going to the Crucible, and I'd walloped him dead easy. It was, it was my dream draw." 
he only played out of his skin, didn't he? You know, when he played me. He set off with a, a 142 break. It's on YouTube. The, 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 there's a lot on YouTube. I was looking up you singing in that band, goodness, last night. <laughs> yeah, but he, he fluked to red in the first frame, made 142 break, and from there he got his confidence and he finished up beating me 10-8 after 24 pints of lager. <laughs> only. 24 <laughs> pints of lager and he beat me. <laughs> And what does that say about me? <laughs> yeah, well, stories of Bill are a legend, aren't they? I mean, he nearly crushed Cliff Thorburn to death at the end of uh, Thorburn's iconic first ever maximum break at the Crucible in 1983 because Bill was playing on the opposite side of the Crucible curtain. And back then, because it was such a big deal that someone was closing in on, on a break that was very rarely made, they actually stopped play on the neighbouring table and Bill, like, peering round the curtain, watching what was going on and then at the end of it when Thorman potted the black he came over and he grabbed both uh, Cliff and Terry Griffiths who obviously was uh, playing Thorburn and I think he nearly squeezed the life out of both of them because he was a big old guy was Bill but <laughs> no I mean it's legend isn't it he used to have to drink that amount yep, of did, lager yep, just yep. to to calm his nerves because he had he had the shakes no, is the, there is there kind of like a a fine line of too much and just about enough with, with, with players not, that might just have a few pints. Not with Bill. I promise you, not with Bill. Uh, and this is no word of a lie. This is absolutely true. He had six pints of lager before he started playing me. And he did that with everybody, whoever he played. He used to have four, five, six pints of lager before and then won every frame. You know, how he ever saw the balls and... and, Did you ever have a little settler before you go out? I did do, yeah. As an amateur snooker player, I always used to drink while I was playing. But then when I turned professional, for some reason, I never had a drink and I never won a match. (laughs) (laughs) So I, I soon changed that. Now, we're going to move on and talk about the quarterfinals uh, starting on Monday. Judd Trump and Kyron Wilson. Here's what he had to say about the way he has played so far in the tournament in beating Tom Ford and Yambing Tao. I'm, I'm more than happy to be in the quarterfinals. You're always going to take that. Um, I've had a few sort of tough losses here in the past and I think that sort of stands you in good stead and, and you kind of really battle your way through any way possible to get through those first couple of rounds and also seeing Mark Selby dig deep as well and, and when you see people like that really digging deep it, it kind of brings you on as well and it's all about having the right mentality while you're out there um, it's easy to get down on yourself when you're not playing amazing but just to battle through the way I did I, I take a lot, a lot of courage from that and still involved in the tournament could be an amazing lineup come the last day and I know how hard I, I've tried for this and I'm not going to give it up without a fight so I've already done a lot better than a few of the past champions that have won it for the first time, but um, the quarterfinals is, is certainly not where I want to finish up and I'll keep giving it my all and hopefully be that first person to, to lift the trophy. Well, let's talk about the reigning champion then, Judd Trump, and he's had to battle uh, Tom Ford, Yan Bing Tao. It's kind of a little bit similar to last year when he had to sweat with Tep Chai Nu and Ding Jianhui. Is it a case of him playing into the tournament? Yeah, very much so, I think. You know, there's, there is a lot of pressure on Judd, whatever he might say. Of course, he's now the world champion and he's answered those doubts and he's had a fantastic season, record-breaking season, winning six ranking titles. But listen, he is desperate to make more history here. He wants to be the first player to successfully defend at the first attempt. You think of all the great players down the years who've tried and failed, you know, Hendry, Davis, O'Sullivan, Higgins, Selby, you name it. Of course, he wants to be the first. And of course, that adds extra pressure. 
And he's not played anywhere near his best yet, but... As he says himself, he didn't last year. You know, all we remember about last year now is that unbelievable performance against John Higgins. You know, he dismantled one of the best players of all time by 18 frames to nine over two days and played a near-perfect performance. But before that, up until I would say the semi-final when he played Gary Wilson, he wasn't playing lights-out snooker. He was doing enough to win. You know, he was 9-7 down to ding. Tepchira knew, had he had a little bit more luck when he went into the Reds in the final frame the first round, would have knocked Judd out. And we'd have been saying 12 months, 15 months later, has he got what it takes to be world champion? You know, those are the fine margins between success and, and failure. So it's easy, yeah. it's easy to actually forget what happened early in any tournament, I guess. You know, we, we'd probably be forgetting about Anthony Hamilton uh, come, come the final, you know, obviously uh, withdrawing from, from the tournament. So it's, it's amazing, actually, the early stages of tournaments. They can quickly be forgotten. But I think we have to remember how slow he was last year. It's all about winning, isn't it? Particularly in the first round when, you know, the seeded player is, is under pressure, particularly as they're playing someone who has come through qualifying, has got at least one match, maybe more under their belt. And, you know, they're at their most vulnerable then. And, you know, Tom Ford pushed him really close, 10-8, and Ford was well in front at one stage in that match. And Yan Bing Tao absolutely gave it everything. And that was a really tough match to come through. So it's all about winning. And now he has won those matches. Of course, he's really tuned up for, for the challenges ahead. Do you think he's playing well enough to win the tournament, Joe? Not at this moment in time, no, but like, like Philip says, you know, it, I remember John Spencer saying to me, look, Joe, he said, I don't want to play well at the beginning of the tournament. I want to build up and get better and better as I go along and, and give me best in the semi-finals and final. And so I don't think anybody that's playing really well at this particular time um, it's, it's not going to say anything about them winning the championship. I mean, look at Neil Robertson last year. I didn't think anybody played any better than that at any time in history. But and yet, um, it, it, you know, he beat Sean Murphy, and Sean said, "Give him the trophy." And then it, I think was it um, John Higgins? John Higgins, yeah. Higgins he lost to. But you know, you can play differently. Each round. He almost hit the ceiling, didn't he? Yeah. Be, be, you know, with, with how successful he had been coming into it. Maybe it was burnout. Who knows? Yeah, well. Yeah, I mean, you can peak too soon, can't you? And, and, and that's the thing. Um, I, I personally think that the way Trump has played in the first two rounds has no bearing whatsoever on his chances of winning. It's not to say he will, because first he's got to get past Kyron Wilson. And Kyron will be... Absolutely up for that because he desperately wants to be world champion. You know, the likes of Stephen Hendry believe that he's got the ingredients to yeah, be a world champion. Yeah. And of course, if he could, in the process, deprive Judd Trump of breaking the uh, the word that must not be mentioned, the curse, uh, then that would be the icing on the cake, wouldn't it? Well, that, that's the thing, isn't it? The curse. I mean, it wasn't really a curse when I won it, although I think there were seven players. You almost... Well, yeah. I was going to say you almost broke a curse that wasn't a curse. But yeah, no one's came, come closer than you. You came closest, yeah, exactly. Yeah, but the thing is that even back then in 86, I think it had only been there, what, six, uh, nine years, but seven people had, had tried to defend the title the first year and seven of them all lost. So even back then, it wasn't really a curse, but it was a curse, if you know what I mean. So what's it like now for Judd Trump, you know, 30 years later? You can, I mean, people used to say to me, well, what do you think about the curse, Joe? Do you think you'll get past the first round? And that went on, I promise you, Rachel, that went on every single day 
for, for 365 days. So what's it being like for Judd Trump? Exactly, exactly the same. Exactly the same. Exactly and the somebody same. will have mentioned that to him every single day. And he might say, well, I'm not bothered about it. Don't bother me. But I promise you this. When things start going a little bit wrong, he'll start thinking about this curse thing. He'll be dying to break it, uh, <laughs> bursting to break um, it, I'm sure. Yeah. He's still there. He's still obviously in with an opportunity. We're looking forward to Mark Selby and Neil Robertson on Eurosport and uh, plenty of other matches uh, that will be exciting the guys as well. Kurt Mafflin will play either Anthony McGill or Jamie Clark. Mark Williams will play Ronnie O'Sullivan or Ding Jean Wee. Now, we've had selections, we've had predictions, who's going to lift the 2020 bet Fred World Snooker Championship. I'm already gone. First hurdle, Mark Allen, I tipped, so we can forget that. Uh, Jimmy White, Neil Foles and Dominic Dell went with Ronnie O'Sullivan. Dave Hendon went with Mark Selby and Phil Yates went with Judd Trump. Now, it's been a while while we've been doing this podcast and finally you've arrived. We've given you a bit of a head start because you're coming in. You're a bit like Kyron Wilson coming in nine days to go. So, Joe, seeing as we've given you a kind of a, an easy in, yeah, yeah, it's very difficult. It's it's difficult to tip somebody because when it gets down to the quarters and semis, you know, there's so many players that are playing really well. I mean, I, I can't say who would win it. You know, I mean, I'd like Judd. I'd like Judd to this, win it. This, I'd like Ronnie to win this it. This really isn't part of the game that uh, predicts yeah, the winner. Yeah, yeah. Oh, isn't it? <laughs> what, uh, Kyron, I'd like Get Kyron off that fence, it. Johnson. Uh, you're getting splinters. Now, the thing is that it's so difficult. You know, you might as well say, who do you want to win it? Who do you want to win it? I'm not telling you. Oh, right. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I'd like Karen Wilson to win it, actually, because I think he's got the game. He's got the, um, the nerve. And I think that you do need nerve. And I think he's going to win it one year. Why not this year? Okay, finally he's got off the fence. Yeah, well, I, I echo that. I, I think Kyron Wilson definitely has the tools to be a world champion, and it could be this year. And if he were to beat Judd Trump, then clearly whoever emerges from that match is going to be the clear favourite to come through the top half of the draw. But that said, I tipped Trump at the beginning of the tournament, so I have to to stick with Judd. Okay, stick with Trump and go with Kyron Wilson for uh, Joe Johnson. Guys, thank you so much. A great pleasure to have Joe Johnson and Philip Studd on this edition. And that's it for now. We hope you enjoyed uh, this episode of The Break. Please subscribe, rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts if you'd be so kind. And don't forget, it's Eurosport and eurosport.co.uk for all the live action from the World Snooker Championship. We'll be back with more in a couple of days' time. But until then, from Joe, Phil and myself it's goodbye goodbye goodbye